All right, our passage today is uh, from John 13. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 and then skip ahead to 31 through 38. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you should never wash my feet. Page turns always the trickiest part. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter, not just, replied Simon Peter, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And then verses 31 through 38. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Resurrection City Church, both to those of you who are in the room with me here now and those of you who are uh, worshiping with us online. Either way, we're very glad to, to be worshiping together on this, uh, this wonderful Sunday morning. I hope you guys are having uh, an awesome weekend, whatever it is, uh, whatever it is you've been up to uh, here. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors, in case you're visiting with us for the first time this Sunday morning. 
And we have been uh, in the book of John for a little while now. Um, and what, what we've been doing is we've been kind of doing these little mini-series within the book, trying to kind of um, put, put them to different things together in a way that's a little bit more digestible than kind of going through it all at once and trying to kind of th- uh, put themes to it. And so uh, what, we're, what we're doing now is we're entering into this, um, this new sort of mini-series, which we're calling The Room Where It Happened. Now, if any of you got Disney, have Disney+, Plus, you, or or are lucky enough to have seen Hamilton uh, live, you, you get the reference here um, that, that we're kind of stealing from Hamilton from the line from the musical. But that's really what's going on in this miniseries. We're seeing Jesus inside this, this room where this really intimate uh, sort of uh, discussion takes place. Um, and it, and it, John kind of offers us this uh, behind-the-curtain look at Jesus that other people in the book are, are just not getting. It's just kind of like you have a, pu- a really you know, public figure, someone who um, goes around giving speeches, who a lot of people know of through you know, viewing them through the lens of a public figure, um, going to watch him speak in public, maybe uh, reading a book by this person, seeing interviews, whatever. A lot of us follow people, public figures like that and kind of vicariously get to know them. But that's not the same as someone who, who knows this person, who travels with them, who gets to be in, you know, up close and personal with them, to ask them questions, to hear them at their sort of most intimate uh, settings. And that's what John offers us here in this moment. He's offering us uh, Jesus sort of behind the curtain with his closest friends, his closest followers, his closest disciples as Jesus talks to them right before he's about to go to the cross. So it's this really important um, moment, uh, I think, in the book of John. And it, and it lasts a lot longer, actually, in the book of John than it does in the other Gospels. So clearly, we're getting uh, a different window into this Last Supper meeting that we're, maybe we're, we're very familiar with, but John is giving us a much more in-depth version of that. And so we thought, let's, let's just turn this into a little mini-series, this sort of Jesus behind the curtain. Now, another thing that John has been doing, and I think it's good to just kind of like get our bearing a little bit in the book, is to sort of, uh, he's weaving this sort of conflict in it. We've been focusing a lot on Jesus and what he's been saying, and we, because of the long chunks of the book, we haven't read through every single verse each week, but John has been sort of telling us the story of the opposition to Jesus and the plot to kill him uh, as well. And so I guess I want to kind of get our bearings a little bit, because we're told in the passage that Jesus understands that this is going on. Um, so Jesus has been clashing with these Pharisees and these chief priests at different points in the book. And these are people with power who have something to lose if someone comes along who uh, is going to sort of uh, grab the uh, attention and the influence that they would normally have for themselves. And so they see Jesus as sort of a threat. And they also aren't huge fans of the fact that every time they seem to talk with him, he makes them look like idiots. Okay, So you can understand why they're, they're not big fans of Jesus. And so in chapter 7, we talked about how Jesus goes to this festival, and at the end of the chapter, we actually get some pictures of the internal discussion among the Pharisees, and if you remember Nicodemus from chapter 3, he actually kind of stands up to defend Jesus, but the rest of the Pharisees are like, we got to do something about this guy, like we should, that's when the planned or the, the, the talk of maybe killing him starts to come up, and Nicodemus is like, hey, what happened to, uh, you know, uh, innocent before proven guilty, and what happened to a, a trial, and, and stuff like that, and 
And so he's kind of defending Jesus a little bit here for them, and they're not too happy about that. And so jumping to, to cha- uh, chapter 10, uh, the, uh, the, the Pharisees finally asked Jesus, they're trying to get Jesus to be a little bit more clear about what he's talking about. And they're like, dude, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. We need to know. And Jesus is, is, is not uh, tr- going to play ball with them. And so they try to seize him a few times, and Jesus is able to get away. And then it all kind of comes to a head at the end of chapter 11. So the Pharisees and the chief priests kind of come together. Uh, the chief priests, you might know them also as something that's called the Sadducees. It's a group of people you read about in the Bible sometimes as well. What happens is when you get a certain group of people together, it's called the Sanhedrin. And it's like the chief sort of legislative and judicial body in ancient Israel. Under the power of the Romans still, but they kind of get together and they form what we would think of as the executive branch and the judicial branch and the legislative branch of Israel at the time. It's this group of this group of priests and scribes and stuff that come together to do that and they ask the question what are what are we accomplishing here we've been trying to go out and and shut Jesus down and it's really not worked look you know look 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 at where we're at here he's actually more popular than ever so we need to kind of maybe change our tactic here and they're starting to fear that Jesus is going to be a a messiah but one who's going to start a revolution and and who's going to get Rome to sort of come down really hard on Israel as a result. So in their minds, um, they think we need to protect the people by stopping them from following this Jesus character because he's going to get us all killed maybe. That's what their fear is. And we actually see this in, in uh, uh, chapter 11, verses 50 and 53, when the high priest Caiaphas speaks up. And he says, you don't realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees have come together and they're like, we think it's better off that we kill this guy. And if we think if we kill him, we'll save everybody else. Now John, the, the, the good writer that he is, he notes the irony of all of this because he's aware that that's Jesus' plan too, that Jesus is going to die for the life of the whole group of people. He actually says, in that way, Caiaphas was being prophetic, but not in the way Caiaphas thought he was being prophetic, right? So there's, there's some really uh, fun irony in that Jesus has the same plan um, to, to go to the cross and to die for the people, but not for the reasons that, um, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are kind of thinking. So Jesus is aware of their plans. We're not totally sure if it's just be, you know, one of those Jesus things where Jesus is Jesus so he knows things that other people don't or if he's been hearing rumors about this stuff. We're not totally sure. But at this point, he's aware of what's going to take place. He also knows that Judas is going to be the one to betray him. And that's where we come to chapter 13, which is where we're going to be spending our time today. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus is aware of these plans and he decides to have this one last sort of intimate Passover meal together. But this is a Passover meal, like even though Jews celebrate this every year as sort of a reminder of their liberation as slaves from Egypt so many centuries earlier, Jesus is, intends this Passover meal to be one that's about his coming liberation and his sacrifice that's going to set his people free. And then framing for the disciples what it looks like for them to live in light of this new Passover. So that's what's taking place here. And what he does is he ends the passage, and you you heard Julie uh, say this earlier, he ends the passage by giving them a new command, a new way to live in light of this uh, new Passover that's taking place. And that command is to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples 
if you love them, if you love one another. So Jesus intends not just for, for, for the disciples to, to, to be nice to each other and to love one another because that will, you know, make them a better group of disciples or something, but he actually intends that to sort of operate like a badge or a uniform that other people are going to see when they look at the disciples that is going to uh, attract them, that's gonna be their identifying feature. When people think of this group of people who follow Jesus, they're going to, the first word that should come to their mind is that these people are loving. That's, 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 that's the goal for these people. That, that's the goal that Jesus has for his disciples. So this is really our first, first point of application. We are to be known as Jesus' disciples by our love. That's, that's the command he's giving. You can kind of think of it like this, this identifying marker feature. When I was uh, at NDSU and I was on the football staff, one of my favorite parts of it was that I got all sorts of free, like, uh, like sweatpants and sweatshirts and like jackets and all sorts of really cool like Nike NDSU football gear. It was awesome. I like literally didn't have to buy clothes for myself. I just wore this stuff over and over again. And maybe at your college that you went to, you, you know how you could kind of tell the, the athletes apart from everyone else because they were always just wearing sweatpants and they were decked out in like the colors of your school? You just kind of knew. You just kind of could tell these were the athletes. Um, that's how Jesus wants love to operate for Christians. When people see us walking around, they, they're supposed to know, they can't help but tell that we are Christians because we love each other. Think, think about the magnitude of that. Christians, we might pick all sorts of things that we think should be like our d- distinguishing mark as Christians. We might pick our doctrine, our belief, our, our purity, um, our, 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 our knowledge of the Bible, um, Whatever it is, we might think these are the things that identify us and mark us out. And those things obviously are incredibly important and and do mark us out. But the top of the list that Jesus says, the one thing I do want everyone to know for sure about you is that you love one another. And that's, 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 that's what he's saying here. So it's a big-time statement. It's, it's a massive thing for him to, to say that Christians should be known for their love. Now, maybe you're sitting here, you're, you're sitting here or you're sitting at home, and you're thinking, Jan, thank you, Joel, for telling us that Jesus wants to love people. That's, that's, I, I, I definitely know that. Um, I, I, I've heard that before. Okay? Not, not necessarily groundbreaking stuff. But I do think when we really start to dig into this, we realize there's maybe a couple of problems for us today as we talk about the, 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 the idea of Christians being known for their love. And I want to talk about those two problems a little bit today. The first one is that Christians aren't always the most loving people, right? I think this, this sometimes can be overstated. I do think uh, that a lot of times all the, the love that Christians do share in the world and have shared historically gets um, gets kind of swept under the rug or not noticed in, uh, in favor of our flaws, right, which we, we certainly have, right? But, but it's definitely true that Christians um, have not always lived this out well. Uh, and so while maybe people are not aware of all of the, the ways that Christians actually have benefited society, whether it's, it's now or in the past, they can for sure tell you that they know Christians... Um, uh, they know about the Crusades. They know about sex scandals in the church. They, they, know, they all know someone like Angela from The Office, right? That sort of judgmental, self-righteous Christian who thinks that they're better than everybody else and definitely does not make them feel loved when they're around them, okay? You, you can be sure that they know that. You, you can sure that they know Christians who, who are hypocritical, who, who say that they're loving but actually are just really apathetic or even jerks, 
And if you ask yourself the question, like how often do I try to manifest Jesus' love, I would imagine that you find yourself pretty quickly saying, yeah, I haven't stuck the landing on that always. I definitely, I know I can say that for myself. I have moments in my life where I know I did not represent Christ in a loving manner that I really wish I would have and I think uh, definitely caused harm to people. Okay, so, so that's a problem, right? We, we, we find that Christians don't always live this out. So does that mean what Jesus is saying doesn't have you know, merit? What's, what's the problem? What's the disconnect here? Um, and, and we've been doing this long enough to where we have a reputation for ourselves. So we got to deal with that. Now, the second problem is what does love even mean? Like, what are we talking about when we use the word love? I think that this word is one of the most used words in our society, and we use it to describe so many different things that it can actually be kind of confusing, right? So you can make love to someone, and you can love your parents, but those are definitely not the same thing, right? Okay, so, so the word there has definitely different meanings. You can, you can love your enemy and you can love french fries, all right? Clearly different types of love being talked about here, um, except maybe french fries are the enemy of our bellies or something, right? But otherwise, we have different, different senses in mind for that. You can love all people and you can love a baseball team, and, and definitely not love other baseball teams, right? So how do those two things go together? We have, we have all these different ways in which we, we talk about the word love. You can love your spouse or your child, and you can love some <laughs> musician or actor or actress that you just, you know, you can't get enough of, right? You definitely treat, you definitely have a different thing that you mean by love, though, when you talk about those two uh, groups of people. So, so what does love mean? What does Jesus mean by love? How can we understand what it is that he's getting at when he talks about love? And I think when we do talk about love, clearly all the, all the th- examples I just gave, what they have in common is that they all kind of talk about some sort of strong, positive feeling that you have towards this thing. That's oftentimes what we mean by love, is just we feel strongly in a positive sense towards it. Uh, and, and so... Um, we're loving things that are naturally very easy to love, right? Things that are attractive to us for some way. You know, we, we throw ourselves into that. We, we don't necessarily mean things that are hard to love a lot of times when we use that word because we're talking about things that are naturally going to grab us and make us excited. Now, alternatively, another way that we might use love in our society today in a general sense is this, just this sort of general posture you have towards all people or a group of people that just isn't hateful, Right? And so we kind of create this sort of binary and really shallow uh, way of, of looking at love as if everything is done out of one of two emotions, love or hate. And so as long as you're not doing something hateful towards someone else, then it must be love. Now, neither of these definitions are, are nearly as robust or radical as what Jesus is talking about here. Yes, he doesn't want you to hate other people, and yes, he wants you to feel positively towards the people that you're loving. But he has something a lot more specific in mind, and I want to talk about what that is. Now, he, he does give us, uh, in the passage, he doesn't just leave us hanging by saying, love one another, but figure out what I mean by that. He actually, he actually helps us understand what he means by that. And I left this part earlier out uh, when, I, when I showed you this part of the passage. But what he says is, this: love one another as I have loved you, that's how you're supposed to love one another. 
So he's given us a model or an example of what it looks like for us as Christians to sort of uh, signal, to wear the badge of his love out there. He's given us a really st- a firm description of what that looks like for us, how we're actually supposed to go and live. And he, he gives us, not only does he, he, he kind of give us and tell us what he means by that in sort of pointing to himself, he actually enacts that love, I think, in the passage when he washes their feet. So he says in, in uh, verses uh, 12 to 16 here, now that I have, uh, now your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, so you should wash an, an one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Okay, so he compares love here to washing each other's feet. So I think within these two sections of the passage, we actually have sort of our sort of satisfying fulfillment, I think, to those two problems we have as a society that we talked about, when, when the, the, road, the roadblocks that we come up to when we hear that we're supposed to be loving as Christians. We actually have those answers in the passage. And so I want to talk about what, how the passage sort of meets those two objections or challenges to us as Christians when, when we're told to love one another. Okay, so the first point of application, and this is the answer to that second problem that I talked about. What is love? Like, what do we mean when we talk about love? Is that we know what love looks like by just looking at Jesus himself. Okay, so we need to be careful as Christians, I think, because this word love is, is used all over the place, right? We have love stories and movies that are all about love. We have love get talked about um, on, on Instagram and, and through like, uh, you know, popular people talking about what love is. We have to be careful to guard our minds and to find out what love means when we talk about love, specifically through the lens of Jesus, okay? We always have to start there as Christians when we're asking, what do we mean by the word love? And to explain Jesus' love, especially in this passage, when he talks about, as I have loved you, so I want you to love one another, what I want us to do is to, to get the context of, of who these disciples are and, and where they come from and how God's love has, has actually led from the, be- the beginning of their story uh, up until this passage here. Okay, So l- let's talk a little bit about the story of how we got to John 13. Now all of these disciples, they're, they're Jewish people. So to really, I think, understand um, what, what that means, we have to go back to the start, the founding of Israel, okay? The, 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 the Jewish people at every part of their story are a group of people that God has set his electing love on, uh, uh, onto them as a nation. Now, if you dig into the history of who Israel is, at the moment that God chose them, they were nothing special. There was nothing special about them. Really, it's God's love that sort of creates them as a people in the first place. And at different times where God acts to, to bring his love on them, specifically if we're going back to uh, uh, Egypt when they're set free from slavery, at, at that point where, where God shows up to set them free, they are like, according to society standards at least, they're the least deserving of love of any people group in the world at that time. All that they are is just this sort of uh, dregs of society slave people for the, the, the uh, Egyptians. They're, they're, they're manual labor for them and helping uh, Egypt sort of continue their upward climb to being the most powerful uh, nation in the world. Okay? But God chooses them. He sets his love on them and what he does is his love uh, leaves Israel better off than who they were before he put his love on them. Um, and, and, and throughout the story, he uses the lowest of the low 
to continually make his love shown to his people Israel. So in the Old Testament, God uses teenagers, he uses barren women, he uses blue-collar workers, he uses criminals, he uses non-Jews many times actually even. He used murderers like Moses, he uses what, what we would call abusers today, like King David. Um, he uses uh, what we would call today racists, like the, the prophet Jonah, to uh, spread his love throughout the world. He picks all the people you wouldn't expect him to, to, to bring his love through. But his love is constantly comforting, it's constantly challenging, it's constantly reforming, and it's constantly leaving Israel and the people who bring that love better off than they were before God showed up and brought his love to them. And Israel's one of their lowest points in history when they're just a backwater territory, um, kind, of, uh, kind of at the outskirts of, of the Roman Empire at the time. That's where the book of John picks up. That's where God chooses in love to, to, to put on human flesh and to choose this group of disciples to, to who are going to follow him and who are going to apparently be the ones who are going to show his love to the rest of the world. And, and so this group of people that he puts together are just, again, going with this theme. They're a really eclectic, ragtag group of people. These, these are the guys who are in the room with Jesus right now, the, one, the ones who he's at, telling to love one another. Okay, just, just some stories, just some like anecdotes about some of these guys, some, some, some of what these guys do at different parts in the Gospels. Okay, these people love money like Judas. We talked about that uh, last week, right? Um, these are people who run at the first sign of trouble. That's what Jesus tells Peter he's going to do when they actually show up to uh, arrest him. Peter's going to run off like a coward, all right? And Peter's like, no way, dude. And then he does exactly what Jesus says, okay? So even though he knew he was going to react that way and, and he said, I'm not going to do this, he still does it, okay? Um, these are people who spend their time arguing over who's going to have the highest cabinet position in Jesus's, what they expect to be Jesus' new administration when he sets it up. They get in fights over it, like petty sort of squabbles amongst each other about which one of them is the greatest disciple, right? Like how lame is that? Like they're fighting over which one of us is the coolest disciple. Um, this, these guys, uh, there's this one story where um, they want to torch a village that Jesus just went to because the people in the village reject Jesus and his message. So they're like, Jesus, let's, we'll call down fire from heaven to blow up this village. What do you think? And Jesus is like, no, we're not going to do that, guys. Okay? This is, this is the group of people that Jesus has put together and has said, I want you to go love everybody else. Okay? Um, these disciples, they're not valuable, and they themselves need to be loved. Because they, they, they're, they're not easily loved people, but they need a love that's going to uh, come and make them valuable. And it's going to change them and make them so that they're able to go out and be the loving people that Jesus intends them to be. And that, that is our second point of application uh, and actually our answer to that first problem of love I was talking about earlier where, where Christians are not always models of love. We actually have an answer in the passage here. That Jesus' love, it accepts people as they are, but it, it calls them to be washed clean. It, call, it, it wants to change or transform them or make them something new so that now they're able to go out and love as well. See, these disciples I've just been talking about, the ones that Jesus is calling to go be his agents of love in the world, these guys are full of, uh, they're, they're like Christians today. They're full of the same brokenness that makes them bad at following Jesus' command to love one another. They're full of the same brokenness that can only be healed by this transforming, cleansing love that Jesus gives on them. 
And so Jesus needs to love them in acceptance, what we might call inclusion today, or tolerance or something like that. He needs to love them in that way, but not just that. He doesn't want to just leave them there. He wants his love to leave them different than they were when he found them, to, to transform them by washing them in his love, okay? And, and, and we see this in the passage when Jesus washes their feet. Uh, Peter says, no, you're, Jesus, I don't want you to wash my feet, okay? Don't, don't do that. And Jesus says, Unless I wash you, you can have no part of me. If, 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 if you're not washed by my love, he's saying, you can't truly love in the way that I'm calling you to do this. Okay? Think about it, think about it like this. Um, imagine you wanted your house cleaned, and you hired some people to come clean your house, but they come in with these super muddy feet, and so they're cleaning stuff, but as they're cleaning other parts of your house, they're making a total mess of the rest of it, just by, by sort of traipsing around, leaving dirt everywhere as they go, okay? The, they, they, they track it everywhere they go. Now, Christians, like all people, we have muddy feet, if we're honest. When we go in to try to clean something, we make it dirty in another way, probably, than what we intended to. We, we, we do unintended consequences, or we, we try to clean in such a way that it just leaves it messier, maybe, than it was before. We do more harm than good. And in a sense, Christianity is all about the muddy feet, right? It's all about us having these, this muddy feet that needs to be washed off. That's what Christianity is all about. So we shouldn't be surprised that Christians with our muddy feet sometimes make a mess of things when we try to go out and live this out. Because that's actually the whole point. The whole reason that we're Christians in the first place is because we're acknowledging we have muddy feet and we're asking them to be cleansed, okay? Okay? And, and so Jesus comes to us and he cleans our feet so that we can go now and clean other people's feet, so that we can go and love others as he has loved us. But he doesn't do it in, in a he doesn't do it in a way that's like going around telling everyone else about their muddy feet, sort of coming in and, and saying we're better than everybody else. That's not what Jesus does here. He doesn't he doesn't just say, You guys are sinners and you have dirty feet and I need to wash them off, you dirty little sinners. That, that's not at all how he washes their feet. When we actually see what he does, he, he does it in such a tender and humble and, and, and loving, approachable way that, that there should be no one who, who rejects this. Okay? In verses 4 and 5, um, John tells us that Jesus got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So what we don't pick up on today because we are, you know, a couple centuries uh, removed from, from the, the, the social context of this is that taking off your clothing and wrapping the towel around your waist, that was like the menial dress of a slave person. That, that's how a slave person would have dressed. And actually washing someone's feet was not a job you gave to uh, people who were like, really high in society. So the, the, the reason that the, the disciples are a little bit uncomfortable or maybe even offended by this is that Jesus is, is, is taking on the job or the position of like the lowest of the low and he's signaling that even in how he dresses. He's dressing like a slave, someone who would have been looked down on by Jews and Gentiles alike. That in both Jewish and, and non-Jewish society, like the, the washing of someone's feet was the job you gave to people who were like, that was the job no one wanted. We would view it as like, whatever, whatever job you're like, I would never work that job. If I ever ended up doing this job, I would be a total failure in life. That's, that's this job, okay? Whatever that job is for you. So Jesus isn't coming in 
to the disciples to wash their feet as if he's so much better than they are and they just need him to come and wash their feet. He's coming in a way that is, that is saying, no, no, you can trust me. I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm saying I want to help you because I love you and I'm willing to serve you. I'm, willing, I'm actually going to love you in a way that doesn't make you feel like judged or trampled on. I'm going to come and love you in a way that says, I, I view you as better me, than me. I'm serving you. And, and, and Jesus, coming back to what he says in verse 14 and 15, he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And this is what the whole plan is, right? It, it, is, is, as I have washed your feet, you go wash others' feet in the same way. As I have loved you in a, in a cleansing way, in a way that, that calls you to, to, to take these muddy feet of yours and have them washed, you're supposed to go love others in that way. As I have loved you in a way that is humble and tender and careful, you are to go now love others in that same way as well. Holding the best interests of the person in the one hand and the truth of the gospel in the other. That's what the love that we as Christians, as we have to go out, that's how we're called to do it. And so this brings us to our our final point of application. We are cleansed by Jesus' love so that we can love others like Jesus loves us. Okay, we, we can know that even though we'll fail at this, that our feet are still going to get muddy. We're still going to mess up people's houses sometimes. We're still not going to love in the perfect way that Jesus calls us to. We can continually know that we are going to have our feet cleansed, that Jesus' love is going to continue to transform and wash us clean so that we can continue to live out this command to love one another in the way that Jesus intends. And that's where our power to go love others comes from is from the love that Jesus has for us. That's where our ability to go and help others be clean, to help others, to to accept others, but then to call them, challenge them towards transformation, towards change, that comes because Jesus challenges us to the same thing as well. It's no good for us to just sit around and sing about God's love for us on Sundays in holy huddles. That's not what Jesus has in mind when he tells us to love one another. He intends for us to go out and to show that love so that everybody else, when they think of Resurrection City Church, when they think of the Christians that they know, the Christians that they work with, the Christians that they live next to, the first word that comes to their mind is love. This person loves me. They don't think they're better than me. They love me. They want the best for me. They're, they're humble. They're tender. They're caring. They want to see me grow. They want to see me be a, a better version of myself in Christ. That's what they should think of, okay? So that's our, that's our prayer for you. That's the challenge today. We're going to do a time of worship here where we're going to have you just kind of reflect on that a little bit, to think about the ways in which um, you have embodied that uh, or not, and the ways in which you can kind of live that out in the places that you are in right now. Lord, we thank you that you wash our feet, you, you love us, you, you call us to, to, to live out this model of love that you set for us so clearly and that we have hopefully seen from other Christians as well lived out. Lord, I pray that you would, you would enable us to live that out, to live out this sort of radical and, and difficult, uh, at times, uh, version of love that you call us to. One that looks different than what we mean oftentimes in our society by love. One that goes deeper, but one that has the power 
to, to bring life, to bring uh, transformation and cleansing in whatever spaces that you call us to have that love in. Make us attentive to where we need to show that love, God. Uh, give us wisdom to know how to use that love in specific situations and help your love to, to spread into the, the Twin Cities area and wherever else we are at, Lord, through that love. We pray all this in the name of the one who washes our feet, Jesus. Amen.